title for just a second. Deuteronomy comes from two words, deuter meaning second or two, and nomos meaning law. But it's important that we understand what this isn't. When we, when we hear second law, it sounds like, okay, we're throwing out plan A, let's try a revision. This is not the law 2.0, okay? On top of that, it's not even really just a rehashing of the law. It's not the second time the law has been stated, although we will hit the 10 words, the Decalogue, what we sometimes call the 10 commandments, almost with slight difference verbatim in this book. What this really is, is a couple of things. For one, the book of Deuteronomy records, if you will, a covenant renewal ceremony. Consider where we're at. The people who stand here listening to Moses are those who are the children of the first generation, the ones who were supposed to enter into the promised land, the ones who came to Kadesh Barnea, were called to go in, saw that the land was good, and because of their unbelief refused to enter in. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 38 years. Slowly that generation died off and those under the age of accountability, under the age of 20, it's those that now stand here facing the same choice that their parents made. And so they were at best young when the covenant was made, when the covenant was ratified, when they stood before Mount Sinai and heard the voice of thunder and heard the law read and said, yes, we will receive the covenant that God is offering. And so there's a need for renewal. In fact, it's really interesting. If you read Deuteronomy closely, um, it's clearly meant to be a precedent. It's not so much an ending or even a new beginning. It's a pattern for new beginning. The book deals not just with this generation, but the generations that are to follow. And even Moses looking down the pipeline and seeing the inevitable rebellion of Israel that will lead to them being removed from the same land that they're about to be entered into. Even for that generation, he speaks and lays out a precedent of what it will look like to return. Okay? And so it's, it's a covenant renewal uh, document. In fact, it's surprisingly similar to many ancient Near East doctrine, uh, um, documents that we usually call suzerain vassal treaties, which are basically long-form, written-out covenants between somebody who owns the land, like a king or a ruler, and the tenants of the land. And so the structure of this book intentionally plays with that for- same format. We'll probably mention that in a few places. But there's another way to look at the book that I think is important. What this book functions as is an exposition of the law. It takes the same law, the law already given in Exodus and Leviticus, and it applies it directly to the people, um, not so much adjusting it as updating it to their current circumstances. He makes the word of God already given relevant. In fact, in doing so, we encounter a new Moses. Maybe you remember that Moses' primary reason for not wanting to be God's prophet, not wanting to be God's deliverer, was because he couldn't speak. That's not the Moses we find in the book of Deuteronomy. In his late age, at the end of his days, 
we find not Moses the leader, not Moses the representative of God against the gods of the court of Egypt. We find Moses the pastor. We find Moses the preacher. And we'll see that the book itself is arranged into separate discourses. If I could update what Moses is doing for us tonight, effectively this is his sermon series and his swan song. He's about to hand over the pulpit and the leadership, uh, his position in Israel. He's about to die and they're about to go on without him and these are his final remarks. And so, we begin in chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazroth, and Dizbah. And so here in the introduction of the book, it defines everything as follows as the words of Moses given at the border of the land. Verse 2. It's 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now, that statement is given, and it sounds like a normal statement, but notice what happens when you add verse 3. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month. Okay? And so what we see is in verse 2, 11 days' journey is a measurement of distance that they covered over the course of almost 40 years. Okay? It's recalling the setting here for us that God had taken uh, an 11-day journey from the giving of the law to the entering of the land and because of their disobedience expanded it a duration, a generation, 40 years. Uh, And so here we're reminded of the circumstances and we'll notice this as we read over and over again this morning. All of history... All of Israel's history, all the experiences of the generation that precedes this generation are brought to bear, primarily pointing to the same thing, a choice. Okay, and so watch, as we read through these chapters, how examples are drawn up for, from, his, for, from the history of Israel specifically to present a choice. In fact, maybe you're familiar with uh, the great culmination of Deuteronomy at the end of his final speaking in chapter 32 when he says today before you I have set life or death choose life okay that's what he's doing that's his main application of this selection of sermons and so even in its formatting we have this reminder of what has happened before when Israel chose death but it continues on Uh, halfway through verse 3, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all the Lord had given him in commandment to them. And so we see here that this isn't merely the words of Moses, but also the words Moses was commanded to speak before the Lord. We see Moses operating here as God's mouthpiece. Verse 4, after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth at Edri, beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying. So look at how many pieces are involved in the setting, the backdrop. As our narrator sets us up for the words of Moses, it's not just as they wait before the promises, it's not just as they're 40 years delayed in receiving the promises, but also after the victories over these two kings, Sihon and Og. 
We'll see as Moses begins to speak tonight that he'll touch on both of those kings as being evidence of God's faithfulness. I've always felt like if you wanted to summarize, if you wanted to summarize the entirety of the Old Testament, in fact, if you wanted to summarize any given book of the Old Testament, it's surprising how handy the phrase is, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. It's amazing how often that is the fitting format of the book, and we're seeing both of those things touched up in the format. They have clear evidence that God is with them and that they are capable of um, receiving the promises that he has given, but they are not even a generation removed from rebellion. Everything hangs in the balance. And so here begins the words of Moses in verse 6. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites, to all their neighbors in the Arabah and the hill country, in the lowland and the Negev by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So he looks back, probably not very far, just a few weeks to when they're wandering, to when they're going in circles, to when their pointless traveling finally comes to an end. You've wandered enough, now it's time to go back. Now the generation has passed away. Moses stands as the only living remnant of Israel's past who will not enter into Israel's future. And so he refers back and he says, he brought us here, we've come up to this border, and these, this is what he said to us when we began to travel. Verse 8, see, I've set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them and their offspring after them. And so he roots this back, not just in the land that I have given your fathers, but the land that I promised to your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. If you go all the way back in Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham for the first time, he says, come to a land that I will show you. And then he creates this covenant. He begins this relationship. He gives these promises to Abraham that I will make you a father of a nation, that I will give you more descendants than you can count, and that I will give them this land that you now see, the land of Canaan. And so he reaches all the way back and reminds them of these promises. Now, notice what he does next. He reminds them also of something practical. At that time, I said to you, now, side note, I want you to notice how many times we encounter at that time or today. Okay, there's a rhetorical device that we're going to see flowing through these opening four chapters. At that time and today, everything in the book of Deuteronomy comes down to present tenses. This is the first reference of it. We'll see more. At that time, I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. The Lord God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. Now, what's significant about the verbiage there? That's the way the promise was put to Abraham. I will give you more descendants than the stars you can see in heaven, Genesis chapter 15. And Moses is reminding them that God's been faithful, that the promise is given hundreds of years before today God has kept. What's his implication? He'll keep the ones that he's made for you, okay? Continuing here. 
He says, verse 11, may the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. Now, we have already seen this in the book of Numbers. He's recalling it here, the time when there were appointed elders over Israel to assist Moses in the ruling, in the judgment of Israel. And he tells us what he did in verse 15. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother and the alien who is with him. And so we have on record for the first time the words that he spoke to these judges, and we have very good principles for a justice system here. The first is that they are to hear the cases, not just between their brothers, but also any resident alien in the land. This justice, justice system is a single justice system for all who are in their presence. Not one justice system for citizens and one for, uh, for immigrants. It's all contained. And then continue, it gives a second principle here. Um, verse... 17, you shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike, okay? Whatever the reputation of the people involved, whatever the wealth of the people involved, their justice is to be consistent. It's to be impartial. And then they add, you shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. Now, it's worth asking, what does that mean, that the judgment is God's? It can mean a couple of things. It can mean uh, that God is actually the one who's giving the judgment, that they're effectively taking the cases before the Lord and before his word, but it's the God who renders sentences. There is one occasion where we definitely see that this is the case. When there is a potential adultery in a marriage, clearly in that story, because it involves this ritual, God operates as judge. But it also, more likely here, when it says the judgment is God's, is not recognizing God's involvement in the cases, but the judge's involvement in representing God. Okay. In fact, according to the psalmist, this is so significant that when judgment in Israel goes sideways, this is what God speaks to these judges. He says, behold, you are God's, but you will die like men. And so this statement is not merely one of the fact that God will be involved in the court cases, but that they will be held accountable. Effectively, the idea here is don't be intimidated by anyone but me. That's what God is telling them. To keep in mind that whatever the bribe, whatever the threat, similar to the words of Jesus who said, do not fear those who can take your life because after that there's nothing else they can do. Instead, fear him who after you are dead has the ability to throw you into hell. It's a similar statement here. And then he adds another one that's important. And if the case is too hard for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. Okay. And so they're not to be so self-reliant that they make bad judgment calls that are above their pay grade. Okay. They're to appeal to Moses. 
and I commanded you at that time all the things that you shall do. Now, it's worth asking what purpose this reminder serves here. It's going to seem oftentimes tonight like Moses is just recalling random history as the uh, epitome of the old fogey, you know, in his rocking chairs, recalling all the days of his history, just rapid fire. But everything he says here is significant. So why does he bring this up? Remember that these judges are in the audience. And remember that these judges are in the audience are going to have to continue what they're doing afterwards. He recalls this for two reasons. One, to speak directly to them and remind them of their role. And two, to recognize the part they're going to play in the success of the nation. You see, if you read the prophets in the Old Testament, as the leaders go, so goes the nation. God is aware of this. He cares about this. He holds uh, the significance of leadership and authority very highly. And so the prophets begin to speak of those leaders as shepherds, as bad shepherds that take advantage of the sheep, and God promises to deal with the bad shepherds. And so God, or Moses here recalls to their attention these leaders and in doing so summons the leaders to recognize their role in the choice that's about to be made. Verse 19, Then we sent out from Horeb and went through all the great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites as the Lord our God commanded us and we came to Kadesh Barnea. Okay, and so the judges are formed and then they travel through the wilderness and although it was horrible and terrifying... They survived it, right? The generation that went through the wilderness was fed miraculously. In fact, later in the book of Deuteronomy, it will tell us that they were clothed miraculously. That over the course of even the 40 years, despite the fact that that involved their rebellion, their shoes didn't wear out and their clothes didn't fill with holes. God watched over them miraculously in this time. And then they come to Kadesh Barnea. The border of the land, verse 20, I said to you, you've come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set this land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring a word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. This thing seemed good to me, and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe. Now, in Numbers, it says something slightly different than this. If you go back and read Numbers, it says that God commanded them to select spies to send into the land. But here it says that the people came to Moses. This is another thing we see about these opening chapters of Deuteronomy, is this balancing of the responsibility of people and God using those people sovereignly to accomplish his own will. And so we find out here the how of the what of Numbers. The what of Numbers is God commanded them to go out. The how is that somebody had a good idea. God had worked in them to bring that about. But why does he point that out here? He wants to point out their involvement in the events, and we should point out something here. Okay? Read with me again in verse 22. Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us. Here's another unique thing in Moses' sermon here. How old were the people he's currently addressing on the pages of Deuteronomy when they stood at Kadesh Barnea? All under the age of 20. 
None of them were spokespersons for the country. None of them were representatives. In fact, the entire reason why they're still alive is because they weren't involved in the decisions of those days, but Moses addresses them today as if they were there and present. We'll see him do the same thing with Mount Sinai. It'll be, the Lord spoke to you, and you agreed with the Lord. Okay. He recognizes here a continuity in the nation of Israel, and he brings it present tense to overlap these pieces of history. So, verse 23, this thing seemed good to me, and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe. Verse 24, they turned, went up to the hill country, and came to the valley of Eskel, and spied it out, and they took it in their hands, some of their fruit of the land, and brought it down to us, and brought us word again, and said, it's good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Now, interestingly enough, this land uh, where Eskel is, uh, is still vineyard land. And when I was in the visitor center of this area of Israel, that was one of their major emphasis, was the vineyards of this land. And so this was particularly chosen to show the fruitfulness of the land, but the spies came back and notice what they said. It's a good land that the Lord God is giving us. Now, if you remember right, that's not all the spies said, but it is something the spies said. They looked at the land, they said the land is good. They also said, but we're unable to take it. Moses ignores that for a second and just pushes the response of the people, verse 26, yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Now, it's easy, I think, from the outside to look at that and see how crazy that perspective is. Okay? Here they are after being led out of Egypt by marvelous signs and wonders, after being provided for in the wilderness, after being led by the pillar of smoke and fire, after seeing Mount Sinai consumed in fire and hearing the voice of God, after all of these things, they go, well, clearly God hates us. Clearly his whole intention was just to murder us. It's a pretty long and roundabout way to do so, right? But the thing is, I think it should make us pause in our own times of frustration with what's going on in our lives, in our own times of blaming God for our circumstances. Maybe you're not bold enough to use the word hatred but even if you are, we have to recognize how capable we are of skewed interpretations. See, what's the problem of the people as they gather at Kadesh Barnea? They have the facts, they come to a decision, but they ignore the most significant fact, right? They have all of these facts that scare them. There are strongholds in the land. There are giants in the land. There are warriors in the land. We're just slave people. We're not an army. We're not organized. Those facts are significant, but they forget the ultimate fact that God is going to give them the land and that he goes before them and fights for them. And here, when they then look over their lives, they take the one big principle... This is what's sitting in front of us. This is what's ahead. They begin to despair and they delete all of the evidence of their past. All of the evidence to the contrary. What is their evidence that the Lord hates them? Their fear. That's it. 
That's what they're actually responding to. That's what they're actually speaking of. Listen, God is not afraid of your anger and your honest frustrations being expressed. Read the book of Psalms. But eventually, you need to own up to the words that God speaks to Jonah that he often speaks to us. Is it right for you to be angry? You see, when we are angry, when we accuse God, the one thing we rarely look at is ourselves. And here, they think the greatest threat to their well-being is God, when in actuality, he's their only hope. And their greatest threat to their well-being is them. Okay. And so, here he lays this out. This is how they murmur in their tents in verse 28. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are greater and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we've seen the sons of the Anakim there, this well-known tribe of giants. Verse 29, I said to you, do not be in dread or be afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. How quickly they forget. Was it their own power that overcame the armies and the chariots of Egypt? No. And so Moses, as a good leader, says, wait, wake up. He encourages them. He says, don't forget. Remember what God has done. Verse 31, and in the wilderness, where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that he went until he came to his place. And so notice how it portrays God here. He says, don't forget about God the warrior. And then he says, don't forget about God the Father. They say, he's hated us. And he says, no, he's for you and whoever uh, you know, stands with God, who can be against who God is for? And then he says, in the wilderness, it was almost as if he was a father who carried you the whole way. Every step you took, you didn't really take on your own, but you leaned upon a loving father. Verse 32, yet in spite of this word, in spite of my encouragement and reminders, in spite of me speaking the truth, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by which way you should go. The last part he points to, he reminds them not only did he provide for you, not only did he fight for you, but he led you. He led you day to day. He recalls all of these events and yet they rebelled. Now, verse 34, the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good of the land that I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephthah. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he's trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of, now wait a minute. He just slips that in there. He's going to do that a couple of times tonight. What does he say here? He says, God was so mad at you, he didn't let me into the land. Now, let's be honest. Hypothetically, erasing the tape, moving back in the scenario, if Israel had accepted and gone into the land, Moses would have gone with them, right? He eventually, on his own, with his own responsibility, by his own choice, rebels against the Lord, acts out in anger, strikes the rock, and speaks to the people as God's representative, not representing God. Right? That's true. 
He's true, it's honest here for him to recognize that he wouldn't have had the opportunity to do so if he hadn't have put up with their wanderings and the complainings and the rebellions that go through over the course of these 40 years. But it is nonetheless a low blow and a false perspective. I would love to be able to explain away the bitterness of Moses. This is such an incredible sermon. If we were to look for a highlight in Moses' life, the place where he is the most what God has called him to be, it's this book of Deuteronomy. But he's not perfect. And he still bears deep resentment against these actions, and he speaks them from a place of bitterness. You see, two things, okay? First off, this speaks very highly of the veracity of the document we're reading. Why do I say that? Think of how highly Israel regards Moses. Think of how important he is. And yet the Moses we find from beginning when he kills an Egyptian to the middle when he doubts that God could really use a guy like him and resist to the point that God gets angry with him to the end where he rebels against God and loses his temper and even here in his last days we find traces of humanity. Not scrubbed away. Unlike Siddhartha Gautama, right, Buddhism, he never takes up a place of the divine. The humanity and the sinfulness and the weaknesses aren't scrubbed away. I can remember an occasion a few years ago where I was sitting down with a friend and I was frustrated. I was frustrated because I had just read a really, really bad book written by a really, really old man. And the book never should have been published. At the very least, somebody should have had the guts to edit it. But it was from our family as a church. It was from our family as Calvary Chapel. And I was angry about it. And he started to share with me some of the interpersonal politics of what was going on behind the scenes of this thing. And to be honest, it was gross. And I said, doesn't that stuff bother you? He said, you know what? I've always found that God is faithful to knock our heroes off their altars. Right? We put them on this high pedestal. And oftentimes in the old age... Things just go sideways. There was a poet laureate. When was this? Just a few years ago, he'd been given this great prestigious reward, award for his life. And he was in his late 80s. And so they went, he'd kind of been retired for a long time. They went and they went to interview him for one last time. And as he's talking there, he goes off on this tirade about how Jane Austen was a terrible writer and women could never be as good of a writer as a man was. And that's his legacy now. You know, the family should have known better than to put him in those situations. Those are the types of things we scrub from the records. Those are the things we forget. You know, history is often written from the perspective of the victors and religion is often written to remove the negatives of their founders but that's not what we see in the Bible, and it doesn't end with Moses. So many times in the Bible, the people who God chooses to use are not that great. Gideon. I don't want to get off on a huge track, but sometimes we'll talk about Gideon's fleece as being a paradigm of how God leads, right? I'm setting out a fleece. That's not a good idea. What do we find in Gideon? We find somebody who's unwilling to believe God and is constantly pressing for more evidence. 
He's not a good example of God's leadership. But even there, God uses him mightily and he gets in this place of leadership and he can't handle it, so he effectively says, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Here's an idol, worship it. Okay. Solomon. Solomon starts out great. God comes to him and says, Solomon, you can have anything. What do you want? And he says, I really want to do a good job. This job is too much for me. I need your help. Please give me wisdom. And God, as we would expect, says, good answer. Good answer, Solomon. Not only am I going to give you that, but I'll give you the things that you didn't ask for. But over the course of Solomon's life, he loves many foreign women, it says in Kings, and they turn his heart away from the Lord. Peter, in the New Testament, is kind of a mess. And not just leading up to. I mean, it's shocking when we get to Acts chapter 2 and you see Peter for the first time after the resurrection of Jesus stand up and speak publicly. Last time he was in a public place, he was saying, I've never heard of Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about, right? And here he boldly proclaims, this is the Messiah that God sent who you by lawless hands crucified. He's a completely reborn person. But Paul tells us in just a couple of years, even after having this incredible encounter where God lets down the sheet and says, don't call unclean what I have cleansed, and is brought into the house of Cornelius and falls the, sees the Spirit fall on them and then defends the entire council of Jerusalem, the rest of the leadership of the church, and says, clearly, if God has given the Spirit, then we have no reason to keep them outside of the church. And then a few years later, he's in the church in Galatia, and he's having dinner and there's some Judaizers there, some people who are like, oh, well, Jesus is great, but you also need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses and become a Jew. And things are raging a little hot, and so the Judaizers are eating at a different table than the Gentiles, and Peter goes, I think I'll sit with them. And Paul stands up and goes, are you crazy? And he challenges him. Peter, Peter the apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul challenges him. Paul this man who has a profound understanding of grace. He travels with a young man named John Mark, and John Mark gets scared and goes home. And Barnabas, Barnabas who gave Paul his start, who came to Paul and said, hey, there's this opportunity at the church in Antioch, you're perfect for it, come, come and see. Barnabas says, hey, let's bring John Mark again, and Paul goes, what, that wimp, no way. And he stays divided from John Mark until late into his life. It's not until almost his death that he's finally reconciled with Mark and finally says, send me John Mark because he's useful to me for ministry. There is only one character in the Bible who stands as being divine, sinless, without failure, without fault. And I think the reason why I wanted to share that tonight is because I find it tremendously encouraging. Because I think all of us are tempted every once in a while to just throw in the towel and go, that's it. Even if God's still going to let me into heaven, he's never going to use me again. Listen, God knows that we're but dust. He's fully acquainted, much more than you are, with your sins. And he's going to continue until he finishes the work that he began in you. But he's not sitting there and going, I've got to get the work finished before I can use you. God could use a man like Moses and use him mightily. 
So he throws in that jab and he continues. Verse 38. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. I love that too. Here Joshua is the new leader, but he's basically saying, be better with him than you were with me. Support him. Don't complain and murmur, but encourage him. Remind him of the goodness. He says, this is a team effort. We stand or fall as a nation. Verse 39, as for you and your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good of evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. So these are the things that happened on that day. And then they answered again, verse 41, we've sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapon of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight for I'm not in your midst lest you be defeated before your enemies. And so they decide now to do what God asked them to, but it's too little and too late. And even when Moses The leader says, God doesn't want you to do this. They continue on their way. Their repentance is just more rebellion. Verse 44, then the Amorites who live in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that remained there. So he's recounting their history. He's walking them through this, and once again, he's putting it not only in the present tense, but he's putting it on the shoulders of his present audience. Isn't it odd that he talks about you, despite the fact that he says your children, they really are the children that he's referring to? It's intentional, though. He's trying to help them to see the comparison, that once again, they stand at a boundary, and not just the boundary of the promised land, but the boundary of obedience, the choice follow the Lord. Chapter 2. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea as the Lord had told me and for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Okay. That for many days we traveled around Mount Seir is 13,000 and some odd days. Okay. It's almost 40 years. But it's passed over in a moment because there's nothing productive there. There's nothing to report there. It's just consequence. It's just them reaping what they have sown. But then, verse 3, God spoke to them, you've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people you're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who lived in Seir, and they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as a sole of the foot to tread on, because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Okay, and so God commands them, As you come along the land of Edom, remember that I gave it to Esau, Jacob's brother. It's their land, so tread lightly. In fact, it's interesting here that they come to the land of Edom and they say, okay, we'd like to enter in. In fact, we're told about that in the next few verses. Verse 6, you shall purchase food from them for money that you may eat. You shall also buy water of them for money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. Okay? In other words, he says, you're going to pay for what you have here because God is going to continue to provide for you. And so 
verse 8, so we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who lived in Seir, away from the Arabath road from Elath and Azan Geber. Now here's what's interesting. Esau doesn't let them in. They come to Edom and they, so, they say, we'd like to pass through the center. We'll take the king's highway right through this land. We won't turn to the left or to the right. We won't drink from your wells. We'll pay from everything we use. And Edom says, no. So they detour and they go around. And we'll see why he's bringing this up in just a minute. Verse 8, we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. Verse 9, and the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab or contend with them for battle, for I will not give you any of their land for possession, because I've given AR, or given R to the people of Lot for a possession. The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they're also counted as the Rephim, but the Mobites call them, Mobites call them the Emim. Okay, now it seems like he's veering totally off in historical details. It reminds me if you read Les Mes, okay? Les Mes proves that Victor Hugo was a historian first and a novelist second. And sometimes he just gets obsessive. And so you're reading and you're reading and it's intentional and it's beautiful and if you know the musical, you're drawn into the characters and then he spends 50, 50 pages laying out the daily ongoings of a single convent in Paris. You're like, really? Then a little bit later, he's like, let me explain to you the entire Battle of Waterloo. And you can tell he's got maps laying next to him as he writes, and he's walking you through the whole thing. Does it matter for the plot? No, but it matters to him. That's what this feels like, but it's something different than that. It's not irrelevant details just because Moses knows things and wants to share. What is he saying here? He's saying that the people who came from Lot, remember Abraham has this cousin, and through Lot's two daughters we have uh, we have Moab and Ammon. Uh, and so, he, but notice what he says here in verse 10. The Ammon formerly lived there. And then it goes on to explain them as giants and add other giants to the list. Formerly. And so he says, before Moab was there, the giants were there. What is he saying? He's saying, I gave Moab their land. And there were giants there. And they took it. Now we're starting to understand the intention of what's going through. We'll get more of it in just a second. Verse 21, the Horites also lived in Seir formerly. So now he doubles back and does Edom, Esau. But the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before and settled in their place as Israel did the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Now that's a weird statement. Right? He says, Esau did it. Moab did it, just like Israel did it. And we go, well, no, actually, Israel didn't do it. That's kind of the point. But it's spoken here in this way because it's prophetic. There's this thing we see in the, um, in the prophets all the time. We call it uh, the prophetic tense. It's basically when the prophets talk about things that haven't happened yet as if they happened yesterday. It's relatively common in the Hebrew. And so he states this as a surety with confidence that we might as well say it's already fact. Okay? But he's doing it in building up a case and we're already starting to touch on something really interesting because, wait a minute, isn't Israel unique in being given a land? What does it mean that God gave the land of Seir to Edom? What does it mean that God gave this land to Moab and to Ammon? What is going on here? I thought we were talking about a unique people that God has raised up. 
Verse 13, now rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered. And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from camp as the Lord had sworn them. And so there's this geographical border to the wilderness wanderings drawn right in the sand here, the river of Zered. Verse 15, for indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So, as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people. Now, we can't read that without comment. What does he label this generation, the ones who died? The men of war. Did they live up to that reputation? No, they ran from war. And so Moses, almost with a little jab here, refers to them as the men of war who perished in the wilderness. Verse 17, the Lord said to me, today you're to cross the border of Moab at Ar." And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I'll not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon, a possession, because I've given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. It is also counted land of Rephim. Rephim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites call them the Zamzumim. Okay? Zamzumim is not a Hebrew word. It's an Aramaic word. The best way we can explain it is a cacophony of noise. Okay? Whatever these guys were, they were rowdy. That's the point. But probably they were named for their fierceness in battle, and that's the real point. That's why they're being brought up. So even the Ammonites had taken the land that God had given them to possess, it says here, verse 21, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Avim, who lived in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kadaphim, who came from Kadaphor, destroyed them and settled in their place. What are we seeing? We're seeing this whole land like a chessboard. And who's playing the game? God is. And we're seeing this play out in the battles of men, but it's the sovereignty of God. You see, the thing we have to understand, and Israel needs to understand here, is that it's not just the God of Israel who will give Israel victory. He's the God of nations. To the degree that Paul in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 17, when he's speaking in Athens, says that God appointed the times and places and the boundaries for all men. God is sovereignly involved in the wars of the world and the movement of nations. Verse 24, rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of Arnon. Behold, I've given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, the king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. Okay, so do you see the progression here? Esau's land, don't touch it. I've given it to him. Moab's land, don't touch it. I've given it to him. Ammon's land, don't touch it. I've given it to him. But Sihon, that land is yours. Okay, now, if you remember, the land of Sihon and the land of Og becomes this territory that is not in the promised land, but coinciding with the promised land, next to the promised land, on the other side of the river Jordan. But notice how he talks about the difference here. And so, here he says, this land is for you, verse 25, this day I will begin to put dread and fear of you on all the people who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So what is God doing strategically with Sihon and Og? It's psychological warfare. 
okay? He's going to do such a thing that the people of the land will hear about it. In fact, turn over to the book of Joshua, chapter 2. So here, spies go into the land again under the command of Joshua. They're about to go in. They're in, the, in Jericho spying things out, and they come and they are hidden by a prostitute named Rahab. And I want you to listen to what Rahab says to the spies, verse 10. Uh, verse 9, she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, for we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, who you devoted destruction. Okay. They've heard of what's happened in Egypt. They've heard of these two kings. And she says, your enemies are shaking in their boots, effectively. And so that's part of what's going on with Sihon and Og, but there's more. back in chapter 2 of Deuteronomy, verse 26. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace. Okay, once again, there's a pattern here. That's what they did with Edom. That's what they did with Moab. And now they come to Sihon, they make the same request. Remember, the, re the answer so far has been no, and they just detour around. But notice here, verse 27. Words of peace saying, let me pass through your land. I'll only go by the road. I'll turn aside neither to the right or to the left. You'll sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot. As the son of Esau who lived in Seir and the Moabites who lived in Ar did for me until I go over to the Jordan in the land that the Lord God is giving to us. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. Okay. So he says no. In fact, if you go back and read what happens in Numbers, he comes out in force. He doesn't just say no, he says them's fighting words. And he attacks. But behind the scenes, verse 30, but Sihon the king of Heshbon would not let us pass by him for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And so we see this tension here between the choice that this king, Sihon, makes and the fact that God is working sovereignly in the circumstances. Does it sound familiar? It sounds like Pharaoh. And that's another point here. The beginning of Israel's history begins with God's sovereign overseeing of the nations. The end of their story here at the borders of the promised land comes out the same way. We're discovering here that the things we learn about in the Exodus are not unique. That this is the God who doesn't change, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is active not only in the nation of Israel, but in the nations of the world because he is the God of all the world. Do you understand why these lessons would be significant to Israel before they go into the land? Effectively, Deuteronomy, like any good sermon, like any piece of Torah, any word of God, is self-revelation. It's God saying, let me show you who I am, who you're dealing with. 
And so he, um, verse 32, then Sion came out against us, he and all his people to battle at Jahaz, and the Lord our God gave him over to us. And we defeated him and his sons and all the people, and we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors, only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Aor, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, from the city that's at the valley as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. Okay, why is that reminder significant? Because that's what they said all the way back in Kadesh Barnea. The cities are too big. He says, were they too big when you fought, the for, fought for them? What God did in Sihon, that's the same God who promised your ancestors, and they denied. The Lord, it continues here, our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near, and all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord God had forbidden us. Okay, and so here we get the final point. That the difference between victory and defeat is God's decree. That's where their power is, okay? They go as either divinely sanctioned or they go against God himself. Chapter 3. Then we turned and went up to the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Idri. Now, we're not told the circumstances of this battle, but it's pretty easy to piece together what happens. Og is Sihon's next-door neighbor. Sihon is completely wiped out. Og goes, okay, this people is a threat, and so he just preemptively attacks. That's what happens here. We'll see the same thing play out in the book of Joshua as things get rolling. Verse 2, but the Lord said to me, do not fear him, for I have given him and all your people and all his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. We took all his cities at that time, and there was not a city we did not take from them, 60 cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction as we did Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. Now, I know how men, women, and children strikes us, but just a few weeks ago we talked about a, a better way to understand what's going on with what's sometimes called the Holy War of Israel. Um, but I don't want to do that tonight. We have other things to do tonight, and we have all of Joshua ahead of us, so we're going to do it a lot in months to come. Um, but if you're interested, uh, pick up uh, and listen to the last few sermons in Numbers um, to, to talk about those things. Verse 7, But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, while the Amorites call it Senir. Now, most likely that comment, it may be a comment that Moses is making, but most likely it's an editorial comment to explain the book of Deuteronomy to its published audience. Okay? To say, wait, you've never heard of this place? That's because it's also called this. Okay? Verse 10, all the cities of the Tableland and Gilead and Bashan, as far as Sekla and Edri, the cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan, for only Og, the king of Bashan, was left, the remnant of the Rephim. Okay, remember the Rephim came up earlier? What did we know about them? They were big, okay? And so this king was not just any king. He was no tiny Napoleon, okay? In fact, notice what it says about him. 
behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. Now, the word here for bed is a broad one. It may be that this is King Og's bed. It's more likely that it's his sarcophagus, his coffin. But either way, 13 cubits, uh, sorry, nine cubits is 13 and a half feet. Okay? It's a big box. It's six feet wide and 13 and a half feet tall. Okay? However big this guy was, he was big. So big that this is now on, uh, on display at Rabba's Believe It or Not. Right? <laughs> Sorry. (laughs) Why is the point being made? God is demonstrating to them that he is fully capable of doing what he has promised to do. Just like the generation before them. If these people choose not to enter in, they do it against the reality of who God is. They do it against the facts that they themselves have, have observed. Verse 12, when we took possession of this land at that time, I gave it to the Reubenites and the Gadites, the territory beginning at Aor, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities, the rest of Gilead and all Bashan and the kingdom of Og, that's all the region of Argob I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the left land of Rephim. Jair the Manassite took all the region of Argob, that is Bashan, as far as the borders of the Gershites, the Machathites, and uh, called those villages after his own name, Haveth Jair, as it is to this day. Okay. Once again, an editorial comment to help people understand the cities that are being talked about. Because as you can imagine, when Israel takes over these cities, they don't leave them named after the gods of these foreign powers. They rename them. Okay. And so this this editorial is added here. Verse 15, to Machir I gave Gilead and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border as far as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites, the Arabah also with the Jordan and the border from Chenereth as far as the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pigsa on the east. Now here's where it gets important. Why are we talking about the settling of this land? He says two and a half tribes settled there, and he walks them through. We're going to see in just a minute. He even adds the cities of refuge that are appointed there. But here's the sermonic point, okay? Here's his final implication of this, verse 18. I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock. I know that you have much livestock shall remain in the cities that I have given you. Okay? A contrast is being made. The people who settle in this land, the two and a half tribes, are going to enter into the land and leave their children at home. Do you remember the complaint of those in Kadesh Barnea? We can't enter in because you're putting our children at risk. Okay? They're responding from a place of faith. Paul, or excuse me, Moses is upholding them here as an example. They're willing to fight even though they already have a land, even though they're leaving their women and children at home, they go into the land, and so they're put here as an example. Verse 20, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers, as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I've given you. 
And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do in all the kingdoms to which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And then we have another personal point. Verse 23, And I pleaded with the Lord at that time. At what time? In the settling of the two and a half tribes. When that's all happened, okay? This is a little ways after, at least a few months, maybe even a few years after God says you're not going to enter into the land. This is after the death of Aaron. This is after the death of Miriam. This is when Moses is the last standing remnant. Here he sees the victory that God always promised Israel, things as they should have been. He witnesses the land as they settle into it. And he prays, verse 23, I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. He says, I'm tasting the beginning of your work now. I'm seeing you do what you've promised. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such work and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. So he says, please, let me see it. Let me go in. Let me walk in the land that you've promised. Let me see the end of what you've began. But, verse 26, the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. And so what, what do we see here? We see over duration of time, he's been praying and begging and pleading. And finally, God answers. And his answer is no. Now, it's worth pointing out here that like many prayers in the Bible, this one is a pretty good model. It's a pretty good example. In fact, it follows a very consistent pattern. Okay. Generally, the prayers of the Bible, Old and New Testament, have three parts to them. Okay. It begins with an address. I always think of it like the name that you write on the outside of the envelope. And so here, it's, O oh Lord God. Sovereign God, right? Lord and God are semi-synonymous. It's, it's God Almighty, if you will, that's being pointed to here. And then he tells us who this Lord God is. You have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? And so it begins with not just naming who God is, but explaining what he's done. We see a similar thing in Acts chapter 4 as the church is gathered. Circumstantially, what's going on in Acts chapter 4 is the church has just been threatened. Stop talking about Jesus or else. And so they come out of prison. Uh, and then chapter 4, verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, and then we get to the request. And it's the same thing Moses does. Okay. Who God is, what God has done, and then comes the request. Okay. Now, I don't think that's for God's sake. I don't think it's so we remind God of who he is. It's so that we remind 
us of who he is. What it looks like to pray in faith always looks like remembering who God is, remembering it, who it is we pray to. And so Moses uh, gives us a good model of prayer here, but that doesn't mean that his prayer will be answered in the positive. The answer is still no, even if the prayer is good. And this is something we have to watch out for. Oftentimes we can make a mistake of thinking that the uh, difference between success and failure in the Christian life somehow hangs on our shoulders. If I just prayed a little harder, if I just believed a little more, if I just worked a little bit more effort, but anytime we do that, we forget that God is sovereign. We neglect the fact of who God is. And so God tells him no, and he also says, don't bring it up again. Verse 27, instead, go up to the top of Pisgah, and look, lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look with your eyes for you shall not go over the Jordan. He says, climb to the highest peak and see the land from there, but that's all that's going to happen. Verse 28, but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him for he shall go over at the head of his people and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Okay, so he lays all these things in the table and even Moses himself becomes a counterexample. Effectively, what he says by sharing so personally is, don't let happen to you what happened to me. Don't think that there's going to be another chance, another repentance. Choose life. And now we get to the highlight of this first speaking of Moses, this first sermon, if you will. This conclusion is such a good preaching. In fact, it occurred to me as I was studying this week that although I've never seen it, the book of Deuteronomy would be a great textbook for how to preach. It's really good. But notice what he does here in chapter four is he takes all the facts that he's laid on the table and now starts to bring it to his application. Verse one, and now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them. See, this is just his introduction. He hasn't gotten to the statutes and teachings yet, but why is he calling them to do them in light of these things? In contrast, okay? He's given him these examples. He's laid out this thing, and he says, now, what I'm about to tell you, when I renew the covenant with you, when I lay these things before you, do them. Why? He gives two reasons here at the end of verse one, that you may live, and two, go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, your God of your fathers, is giving you. Then he continues, verse two, you shall not add to the word that I commanded you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God I commanded you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. So he brings up another illustration. This is the great rebellion that's sparked by uh, by this seer, right, Balaam, who comes to the king and he goes, you know, I can't curse them, but you can tempt them, so send your most attractive temple prostitutes in to invite them into worship and fornication, and because of that, a ton die, and this is very recent, okay? They've just dusted off their hands from the soil of these burials, and he reminds them of this, and he continues in verse five, he says, see, 
I've taught you the statutes and rules that the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them. In the land you are entering to take possession of it, keep them and do them. You hear the repetition here? That's the third time he said to do the commands. Um, Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Now, I love this. This is actually a third reason, okay? So he says, do this that you may live. And he says, unlike Baal Peor, do this that you may take possession of the land, right? Their occupancy of the land is going to be contingent upon their obedience. And then third, he says, that your wisdom and understanding will be in sight of all the peoples. The third reason they're to obey is because Israel is designed to be a demonstration. The way that they respond to the law is supposed to be public and visible so that the other nations would know who God is. We'll get more on that by the end of the chapter. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has the statutes and rules so righteous as this law that I set before you today? He says that this law is a gift. Now this is an important thing to remember because sometimes sometimes we look at the Old Testament law and we read it as being law bad and grace good. Okay, That's a mistake. What Paul is trying to say when he talks about turning away from the law or contrasting the law and the flesh with the spirit and life is not the same thing that Moses is talking about here. In fact, if you notice, Paul extensively quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, as did Jesus. Okay? There's a unity here. And notice, and we'll see this more as we move through the chapter, before the law is given, the grace is already shown. God already started relationship with them. He doesn't come to them while they're slaves and go, would you like to be free? Because we can work out a deal. I'll give you some rules, and if you keep the rules, then I'll take you out. No, 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 no. God delivers them first and then gives them the law, and the law is good. So good. He says, who has ever had God so present? Here, God travels with us in the tabernacle present with these people and then he says who has ever had a law so good so righteous you see we can't hold a negative view of the law and understand the psalmist when he takes the longest of all the psalms to rejoice in the goodness of the law even Paul like I said what he means is something different and he views the law in this way listen to his own words in the book of Romans chapter 3 So he shows here that Jews and Gentiles all stand condemned before God and therefore need a savior. But notice what he asks here in chapter three. He says, what advantage then has the Jews? Or of what value is circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He says, there's a huge advantage the Jews have. It's called the Torah. It's the very revelation of God. He picks this up later in the book of Romans in chapter nine.
In the beginning of 9, he says, look, I love my family, the Jews, and I would gladly give my life on their behalf. And then notice what he says here in verse 4. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. He sees the whole package there as a blessing from the blessed God, a good thing. But he also argues that you need to know what the law is for. You have to understand how it was to be used. But the law, as Paul himself says, is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not with the law, he says in Romans. The problem is with us. And so it's this good gift that is being presented them to, to them today. So verse 9, back in Deuteronomy 4. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. Okay. He says, remember what God has done. Notice the relationship there. Remember what God has done, therefore obey what God has said. Okay? What God did leads to the call for obedience. The indicatives is God has saved you. The imperative is therefore obey his word. That's the setup that we're looking at. Okay? But notice this. He says, first, you need to take care. Uh, of what your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart in the days of your life. And then you need to tell them to your children, make them known to your children and your children's children. The order there is really important. Okay? It's first, take care for yourself and then teach your children. No, do as I say, not as I do. That's out of bounds. Okay? Significantly, he recognizes the fate of the children is bound up in the obedience of the parents. Okay? And once again, this generation knows the results of that. They know what it's like to wander in the wilderness and to experience the consequences of their parents' sin. Verse 10, How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days of my life on earth and that they may teach their children so. Okay? And so now he's going back and he says, remember when you heard God's voice. And what he says here is, he did so, so that you would learn to fear me all the days, and that you would teach my children to do so. Okay, he continues here, verse 11. You came near. You stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Okay, and so what we see here is what God did at Sinai in the giving of the law was inherently and primarily auditory. Right, do you see that? God spoke, but all you saw on the mountain was clouds and glooms and darkness and hiddenness. That's going to become important in a second, verse 13. He declared to you his covenant which he commanded to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. Now, Ten Commandments is just what's become common language, so that's how it's translated in my Bible in the ESV. But this phrase here in the Septuagint in the Greek, it's the Decalogue, is literally the ten words. Okay? Even if you read the Ten Commandments, it's more than just do this, don't do that. There's more involved in that. Um, so, so the Decalogue, or the ten words, is a better way to put it. 
And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, verse 14. The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Therefore, okay, because you heard the voice and didn't see the form, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure in the likeness of of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, and the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. He note, notice here that the emphasis he makes after saying, obey, 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 and then beware, 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 where does he begin? With idolatry. He says, this is the real threat. He says, remember that all you heard on the mountain was a voice, so don't try and make God in some image. Don't try and conform it to some standard. Verse 19, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, that you'd be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, the things that the Lord your God has allotted the people under the whole heaven. Now, notice here that he roots, he roots avoiding of worshiping other things in remembering who he is, right? The order here is remember the deliverance, remember the covenant, remember what God's done. Um, but also it says here there's an, a particular threat in the heavenly bodies, stars, sun, and moon. And that was definitely true in the land of Canaan and in the surrounding world. It's, it's exhibit A, of local worship, local religion, okay? Um, but we have to ask what it means when it says, uh, all the host of heaven to be drawn away, bow down to serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. And the question becomes, wait, so is that saying God gave the sun, moon, and stars for other nations to worship? That's how we can read it. There's two better ways to read it, okay? The first is to recognize the similarity between what's said here and what's said in Genesis chapter 1. You see, on the fourth day, when God creates the sun, moon, and stars, he appoints them for times and seasons for all the world. And so it's probably here, not that he appointed them for worship, but that he appointed them for usefulness. Okay? But there is another one that I just can't get around, which also could be the case. If you read Romans chapter 1, Paul also talks about idolatry, but not a warning against idolatry, but a progression of the world into idolatry. And so he begins with them rejecting of the God who is made visible in the things that are seen, even though he is invisible. And he says, therefore God gave them over to worship everything. And it's the same list here, creeping things and animals, etc. Okay. And so the idea here is that uh, maybe that in their rejecting the living and true God, God has given them over to idols. As Paul puts it, because they've rejected the truth, God has given them over to a lie. But continuing on, verse 20, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt. Side note, if you want to cross-reference, remember Abraham has that dream in the middle of the night when he's having the covenant with uh, covenant with God and he's cut all the animals in half and it goes dark and there's this vision of this furnace walking through 
and he says, know that your people will be in Egypt. There's a connection here. But effectively, he says that what Egypt was to Israel was suffering. It was an iron furnace that God brought them out of. To be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, for I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image from anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You know that saying, out of the frying pan and into the fire? Do you see how it's at play here? Out of the furnace and into the jealous God who's a consuming fire. Now what's really interesting about this passage is in the end of this paragraph, he's gonna say something about God that sounds very different. For, your, for the Lord God is merciful. And we go, well, which is it? Is he a jealous and consuming fire or is he a merciful God? Okay, well, for starters, we should explain the word jealous. Jealous for us in modern English only has a negative connotation. It's always inappropriate. In the Hebrew mindset, jealousy has a negative version. We find that often, but it also has a positive version. What it means when it says that God is jealous is that he cares about our relationship with us so significantly he will defend it from interrupters, from people who interfere, okay? In other words, if I see a guy hitting on my wife, the reaction that I have is a reaction of love. But it is a jealous reaction. Not in the sense of, I'm insecure, I can't believe you talked to that guy. It has nothing to do with how I feel about that person. It has to do with the inappropriateness of that action. That you don't seem to understand this relationship here, right? And I find it as a relationship worth defending. I was watching Battle of the Sexes with my wife this week about the great tennis match uh, between men and women, speci specifically between Billie Jean King and Barry Riggs. Uh, I think it's Barry Riggs. Um, but Billie Jean King uh, starts to have an affair over the course of the movie, and her husband finds out about it. And he cares so much about her as a tennis player, he doesn't interfere. And he basically says, if this is what you need... And I was asking my wife, I said, does that seem strange to you? Of course it does, right? It's a time for jealousy. And so this is a positive statement, but that doesn't mean it's not one that has some sort of important fearfulness to it. When it says the Lord God is a consuming fire, what's the evident implication? Don't be consumed, okay? So this is laid out, but notice how it continues, verse 25. When you father children and children's children have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call on heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over to the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it and you will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you out. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone in the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. So do you see the progression he sees here? If you pursue idols, then I will send you into a land that worships them. Okay. I will give you over to what you want. But, verse 29, from there 
you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. So he doesn't see that as an end. He sees the jealousy of God operating, but there's another principle involved here, a deeper principle. And so in verse 30, when you're in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, notice the way he says that, not if, when. We'll see this extensively later in Deuteronomy. Moses knows the future of Israel. He's not playing the odds here. He knows how this is going to go. In fact, that's something significant about what Paul says about the nation of Israel in general. Why did they go sideways? So that God may have mercy on all. One of the things that Israel should do, instead of making you arrogant and going, how stupid can they be to reject God? It should make you realize how significantly deep the rabbit hole goes. How bad the problem of human nature and sin really is that we could have all the advantages of Israel and despise and spurn the God who saves us, okay? And so Israel is an object lesson to the nations, not just on the goodness of God, but also on the mercy of God. And so that's built into the plan, and he says, when this happens, notice what it says, in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. That's important, okay? Why? Because it's common for us to quote this passage that says, if you seek the Lord God, you will find him if you search after him with all your heart. What does it look like to seek the Lord God with all your heart? It looks like repentance and obedience. Do you see that? You will return and obey. That's what it looks like to seek the Lord. It's not just sitting in a room quietly and waiting for a chair to move or a voice to speak. It's a surrender. But if you surrender you will not be turned away. This is a beautiful verse. If you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you search after him with all your heart, with all your soul. That's surrender. You have to give him of yourself. Verse 31, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore him. And so he begins by saying the Lord your God is a consuming fire and he ends by saying the Lord your God is merciful. And we have to hold those in tandem. We have to hold those in tension, and they're just as true of our life. I don't know if you've seen or noticed the parallels between our life and Israel, but remember, the same Jesus who died for you before you asked for it, who offered you forgiveness freely on his behalf, also, also ends the Sermon on the Mount saying, the one who builds his house upon the rock is the one who hears my word and does them. Remember that he says in John chapter 17, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Okay, it's indicative and imperative. I have died for you, therefore obey me. I have taken you out of Egypt, therefore keep the words of the covenant. It's parallel. Let's just do this last section here in verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which are before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of the heaven to the other where such great things as this have ever happened or were ever heard of. This is Moses' preaching at his best. He says, go back to the beginning of history. Compare every record of every nation and tell me one place where God has done anything like this. Verse 33 did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? 
Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? He says this is incredibly unique. God has done something significant here. 35, to you it was shown. Why? That you might know that the Lord is God and there's no other besides him. He says, this unique thing has been done so that you would know who God is and that he is the only God. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth, let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. Now, the word there for discipline is a broad word. It means to take under tutelage. Okay? And so it's not he, you heard the voice so that, so that he would discipline you in the moment it's so that he would take you under his tutelage so that he would enlist you so that he would grow and change and mature you and on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard the words out of the midst of the fire and because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power okay and so here we get a second reason first God did this so that you might know second God did this to keep his promises to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom he loved. Verse 38, driving out before you the nations of greater and mightier than yourself to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. There's that present tense again. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord your God is in heaven above and on the earth belief, sorry, know that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath and there is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and commandments, which I command you today. Notice that who leads to what? Know that he is the only God. Therefore, keep his commandments today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. That section is one of the great passages of Scripture. It belongs up there in the sermons of history, uh, right along I Have a Dream and Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and, uh, and some of these great sermons, you know, we can apply this as well to ourselves. The best way to read Deuteronomy is to read it as present tense for us today. That we stand. Today we choose to follow God or to rebel. Today we choose. And so we need to ask ourselves, what other people have had a God who took on flesh and bore our sins in his own body on the cross? What other people have heard him speak so clearly into our hearts and have been given the Holy Spirit? What other people have experienced the blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus? Therefore, keep his statutes and commandments. Therefore, devote yourself to the obedience of the God who loved you. Let's go ahead and stop there for the night. Let's pray. It's a quaint saying, Lord, that those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. But that's the danger that we're all in. That we often look at these things and see them as distant and sometimes irrelevant, but these are you demonstrating who you are and you are the same yesterday and today and forever 
And so I pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see our Mount Sinai, to see our Mount Calvary, the place where you proved your character, where you showed beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a consuming fire and you allowed your son to be consumed, where you showed that you are great and compassionate and merciful and you extended those scarred hands to us and invited us into relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, that we would just confess with Israel that your word, your Torah, is good. And that we would choose today and every day that is named, known as today to follow you. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.